Hi, I'm Gary David. And I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds. Now, I grew up in the 1970s and 1980s. And doing so, I knew about punk rock. It wasn't the music that I was listening to primarily. It was more of a heavy metal fan, actually. But I knew it had a strong following of adherents who not only loved the music, but also lived the lifestyle. And they, trust me, they weren't too hard to find, pick out of a crowd. They were pretty obvious who the punk rockers were. And one of the things that became obvious is that punk is more about just the songs. It's an ethos and it's an aesthetic. The punk lifestyle and its music is all about attitude, as well as fighting against norms, traditional dogma, social injustice, and even intolerance. Punk strives to move outside of how things have always been done, as well as being generally cautious of authority and not trusting authority. The more society tells you that you should be doing something, the more likely you're going to see punks heading in the other direction really quickly. And it's also about a simplified lifestyle, not buying into the materialism of society and having music that speaks to the soul and is not overly produced in a control room. So what's cool is today we're combining all of these ideas and we're talking with Adrian Swinsco, who's a customer experience guru and author of the book, Punk CX, which draws from his love of the punk lifestyle and from some of Gary's own experiences too, in culture to make the case that we need to rethink the overly bureaucratic and out of touch consumer or customer experience apparatuses of so many corporations and businesses. He advocates for a DIY, democratic, and back-to-basics cultural approach that we're super excited to share with you all. So sit back, put on your headphones or your Walkman, break out your torn jean jacket, your metal studs if you still have them, get them out of uh, storage, your spiked piercings, as well as your punk attitude, and listen to Adrian talk about how to make CX more punk rock. I have read your book. Okay. What do you think? No, I love it. I mean, it's so, it's so cool. Um, just because, I mean, number one, it's the way in which, you know, it's put together, right? But then also the sentiments there, I was, as you can see by the markings, very much in agreement. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah, right? So I was going through going, yep, 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 that, sure. Yep, that one too. Oh yeah, definitely that one. We got to mark that one down. So I was, I was all over it. And it's just, it just lovely. I mean, it's just a lovely piece of work. Thank you so much. I tell you what, you can maybe can like uh, help me solve uh, a challenge that uh, my wife has given me because she hears about all the, kind of the book stuff and I'm like, yeah, yeah it's fine. Um, and she says, I think your book should be on some universities or all universities reading lists. And I'm a bit like, yeah, okay. Um, and so if you could hand it to a student or get it on, a, on the reading list of a course, then I can go back to my, my wife and say, yeah, I did that. And 
and then I'll be, and, and she'll be like, yeah, and I'll be like, under less pressure. Well, you for, know, for her to her for her saying, you should just go and change the world. Just go on, hurry up. <laughs> I am uh, I am not in a position to grant many wishes, Adrian. This is one I can actually grant because what's why your why your wife is smart here about this is that and as I was reading this, I was like, this is the exact kind of book that students would love because it's visual and it's concise, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, there the points you're making are profound enough to let a person like me who's teaching kind of move off of them, right? They're concise enough that I could build a lot out of, but they're concise enough also that I know students would read it. Cool. I mean, that's just made my day. I will tell her, and it will make her day too. No, I'm teaching. I'm teaching employee experience over the summer. I teach a course oh, okay, on employee cool. experience. Nice. And so something like this fits perfectly into something like that because of the way you integrate experience design and not just customer experience. It's not just the metric. It's not just yeah, the yeah. wow. It's also the employees. It's your culture. Right. I mean, it's like about you as a CEO, you know, don't worry about fixing the customers, fix you. (laughs) Don't worry about fixing your digital, fix you first, because none of the other stuff is going to matter unless you're all screwed up. So um, just uh, for um, uh, some housekeeping stuff, can I swear on this? Yeah. Fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we can always because do that. Because I think that. that's the kind of that, uh, that's the thing. The, the the book is a bit like that. I, I I tell you what, I did find you'll you'll find this fascinating. I think there was a piece of research that was that was done that I and I wrote about because I thought it was just supremely interesting. Did I combine it with um, a piece of uh, coal data research that came from coal miner and they do kind of coal analytics. With um, and they were talking about the rise of profanity in contact center interactions. However, serendipitously, I'd also discovered this piece of academic research that said, or rather suggested, that people that are that use profanity have a tendency to be more direct and more honest. And I was a bit like, that's interesting. And because if you think about it from an organizational perspective, most organizations, as soon as they hear uh, profanity, they go, whoop, and then the, yeah. the, you know, the red lights go off and are like, not listen, la, 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 not listen to that anymore. And therefore, they don't lean into it and don't really understand it, even though the science is suggesting actually that might be more useful. And I thought, that's fascinating. So, and I find as I get older, I'm tending to be a bit more sweary. I don't know if that's me embracing my inner cantankerous kind of like, I don't know, being or not, or just I'm just getting a bit more shouty. Who knows? Well, there is, I was just looking it up and I did not watch it yet, but on Netflix, there is a documentary called The History of Swear Words. Yeah, we've watched it, loved it. <clears throat> it's brilliant. It's good. Oh, the Nicholas Cage Nicholas series. Cage. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> brilliant. It's sort of a bit like the play on, um, have you seen the one that Jeff uh, Goldblum has done. I don't know if it's on Netflix or Prime or whatever, where he just looks into things that he's just interested in. Oh, that's a, and that's not you, all right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like uh, so he's going. I want to know about coffee, or I want to know about tattoos, or I want to know about denim, or I want to know about this or that or other. And he just goes deep into these things. Like they did one on barbecues uh, and stuff, and and he just gets up to his neck and in, in this sort of stuff and finds it does the whole history and everything. So. It's almost a bit like 
Nick Cage has done that for Profanity. Right. And it's like, and it's just beautiful and really funny in places. I think there's a nice thing about there about, you know, regarding your book, Punk CX, is companies claim they want authentic experiences, but they really don't. They really, uh-huh. they really, they really want their, their workers to have these standardized, sanitized, you know, regimented, measurable things yeah. that, they, that, that can get as close to authentic as possible while still retaining what they see as those essential qualities. And so they, that talking about swearing on a podcast or your history of swear words and your book, it kind of connects for me because despite what companies claim they want, when you look at their actual behaviors, it's pretty clear that's not what they really want. Yeah, I, I, and you know what I actually can like think. I mean, because there's, there's a there's a uh, I don't know if it's a contradiction in there or a hypocrisy, possibly or possibly both. In that people say they want this kind of authentic sort of thing, but yet invariably they're not that way themselves. Mm. So that's kind of one thing. And then the other thing is, I think there's there's one. I, I think one of the biggest challenges in organizations around empowering and or enabling people to um, do the right thing for the right reasons in the right way, as it were, is how many people that either own organizations or uh, run them and manage them and things. It's almost like that the assumptions that they have or the beliefs and the values they, they, they have in their heads about what they think about people in service positions. Yeah, right. Um, and because it's always frustrated me that, and this is one of the reasons I, I got into this sort of space, is that it frustrates me that, that all, too many organizations get in the way of their people doing a good job. And, and ultimately, it's all about, I believe that, you know, people given the right sort of conditions and the right sort of support are capable of all sorts of greatness in all sorts of different ways that we haven't really like thought of. We just have to sort of enable them to do that, but not in a, yeah, you can put guide rails, but, you know, I guess it's all about how stringent those guide rails are. And some people are a bit like, you're trussed up as if you're like, <laughs> you're, you've got long sleeve share. You're like, ah, we're off to the funny farm here. Right, right. You know? And it's, I, it, I think it's fundamentally rooted in, in what they believe people are capable of. And you know, that's not just restricted to kind of organizations. It's also restricted to, you know, it's also kind of, we see that abound in, you know, in politics and political beliefs and how people kind of, you know, sell from a kind of a political kind of platform and everything. It's, it's, a lot of it's about kind of how we, how we think about people. That, that, that's in, that really resonates with me too. I was actually just listening to a, a, a podcast that's called Decade of Courage that uh, is, is a really great look at, at you know, kind of weaving storytelling and expert ideas and, and anecdotes and, and history lessons in, in sort of context. And the episode was actually on like essentially the rise of neoliberalism. Not that we have to go too deep into right. this, but just this idea too, in terms of what, you know, the systems that we put in place and how those actually define what a lot of leaders think people are capable of too. And that's like an important piece of this in, in terms of, you know, when we say it's really all only about the individual acting in ways that are, you know, either self-interested or if we're in an organization acting in ways that are in the interest of the organization or for shareholders. Uh, it's interesting that like when we, we just try to put it on, it's the way this person acts or even because swearing is a great individual thing that I do, right? Uh, but then right. we like take no responsibility for the organization or the or the guardrails themselves. I think you're, you're totally right too, where it's, it's like we do see a lot of uh, 
like wonderful things that people can do when they have decision-making power. And there, yeah, we all need to have some guardrails. That's what culture is, right? There are guardrails, so we don't mm-hmm. just go do anything. But at, at the same time, uh, you know, when we're, when we're given decision-making power and, and, and leeway in terms of like, you know, we can lean on your expertise as an individual, as a person with context and culture, uh, we see people make, you know, great decisions and they can, they can do really well. So I don't know. So this is interesting, just tying together. It's a lot of different thoughts there um, mm. about how we, how we like consider cultural context and social context in terms of how organizations think about people. Cause I, I think, I think you're absolutely right there. I don't know if that does anything, but yeah, mm-hmm. no, no, abs- absolutely. I mean, I, I think, I, I mean, I think it's very, it, it's absolutely curious and uh, about all of this, but I guess it makes me think about how do we unlearn some of that sort of stuff? Mm. You know, because even if you realize that the, as say a leader in an organization and you want to enable or produce better outcomes, but you know that you've gone this way, but you know, you need to be kind of more this way, then how, what's that process of unlearning? Um, and that's the thing that I find I find fascinating, um, because it, then it, it shows up in that sort of that, that sort of thing is that people will kind of like uh, they'll say one thing, but then they'll do completely another because they actually haven't done the work to actually, you know, understand what I need to do to back up what I'm what I'm what I'm saying and to be that congruent character. Like, oh, I believe my people are people are our most important asset. You know, our people are everything. As you know, as our customers, <laughs> you treat them like crap. <laughs> like, how the hell is that supposed to work? But you know, maybe the 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 desire is there, but actually, the biggest barrier is how do we unlearn some of the, all those habits and the cultures? To, you know, to so we can then, if like, move to a different domain or different way of doing things. One of the things that I've been thinking about a bit around this is around language, for instance, it's not like a big revelation, but language, how we talk about things affects how we perceive them and, and, and how we treat them. And, you know, as we're chatting about this, I think one of the most harmful phrases that was ever created related to this point you're raising, Adrian, is knowledge workers or knowledge work, because it automatically creates that some work over here is knowledge work, but these people over there by, by definition, by default, would be unknowledge work or not knowledge work. And, and, you know, one of the points you raise, one of the chapters you raise, and I've read this with, raise it with clients, you know, you, so a client might say, I want to know the voice of the customer and we're going to create these surveys and we're going to hire these people and we're going to use these analytics. But what we're not going to do is talk to the people who actually talk to the customers, who actually mm-hmm. listen to the literal voice of the customer. And when I've asked clients this, I've said, so you literally have recordings with the actual voice of the customer on it and you do nothing to listen to it and analyze it. And they're like, no. Do you see a problem there? Well, yeah, there's, there's just the call center people. Like, what would they, what would they know? <laughs> well, oh, actually God. quite a lot. They would know quite a lot if you ask them. <laughs> you know, I, I it, yeah, you just touched on a nerve there. I mean, because it makes me think about, every talks about, you know, you talk about analytics and stuff, and then we get into sort of computing power. And then we'll start talking about, Somebody will throw in AI, and then we'll get to kind of ML, and then we'll get to neural networks, and then it's all about how big the horsepower is, right? Right, right. And the thing that kind of like surprises me is like, and I say to people, it's like going, do you know that you have a network of organic supercomputers right in front of you? 
oh, by the way, they're all networked. Right. Right? And just, you know, and they're there, and they've got all this kind of latent knowledge in them that is getting refreshed in real time every hour of every day that they're in the office. And yet you do not, you do not tap into their computing power in a, in a meaningful way. Oh, and by the way, there's a double whammy kind of here, because if you do, do, and then you can actually ask them and you listen to them and then you responded, you acted on what they kind of like said, you get a kind of a flip side. One is you get real insight into what your customers are thinking from your employee's perspective. And two, the flip is that your employees actually kind of think, wow, they asked us, they listened to us, now they're doing something about it. And then, oh, they respect us. Magic. <laughs> if only we taught that in MBA school. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, kind of interestingly enough is that <clears throat> I know it's sort of changing a little bit now, but I think you come back to the kind of education. And you know what's fascinating, I find fascinating about you know MBAs. I I you know I have one, you know, I took it one about 20 years ago. Um but even now I I think about MBAs. And I think about what they teach, and it always struck me um, that MBAs don't teach sales largely, and they don't teach customer service, which are probably two of the most important kind of parts of any kind of business. They teach finance, they'll teach HR, they'll teach kind of operational research, they'll teach uh, marketing. They'll teach strategy, leadership, blah, 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 blah. But the kind of the two bits where people kind of have to interface with other human beings. Right. And that's where the, that's where the real magic kind of happens. Largely absent. Mm. And I think that just speaks volumes about kind of how we go about the learning and unlearning and relearning sort of like stuff. If we don't set the base, like, and ask ourselves, what does it mean to serve? What does it mean to kind of provide good service? How do people kind of do that? What does it mean to kind of like to, to, to be a good salesperson, to understand something, to actually kind of listen, you know, and to engage with kind of people? I think I think that's kind of fascinating. It's, it's a massive, massive um, gap, I think, in a lot of business education. But I know there's some schools that are catching up. Um, and... And they're starting a lot more starting to add sort of customer experience into their into their mix because that's become interesting and 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 a bit more sexy as it were. But not many people not not many people are there. I would suggest they're taking more of the the data and the analytics and the marketing right. side of things, right? Right. But they're not going down into the kind of the the the, the sort of service side of things or support side of things, regardless of how important those things are. Well, it's like it's. And I sort of wonder why. Well, you know, I'm, I mean, being from the inside a little bit, you know, being an academic or teaching an MBA program as well, from, you know, I'm not speaking about my school per se, but just in general, the idea that we want to teach customer experience as a set of, of checkoff boxes that you need to accomplish in order to say you're doing that thing. Hmm. At, at the best, by the way, because many companies, as you know, are just like, we need to do customer experience. Who can we get? Who, who knows? How to, you went to art school. Why don't you do it? <laughs> yeah, or you 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 do user experience. It's basically the same thing. Do it, and without really understanding the transformational element of what it means for the organization, it's just 
a thing to do to get a higher NPS, or it's a thing to do because our competitors are doing it, or there's an analytic dashboard in Salesforce that has something about it, but not really to, to live it and to be it. And the mm. same thing with employee experience. It's like, we got to do it because you know we want to say we do it because everyone else is doing it. We read a McKinsey or McKesson or, or Forrester or Gardner report that said we should be doing it, but we really don't know what it is, but we don't want to take too much time doing it. And that, so it becomes distilled into this kind of formalized, you know, essentialized thing that doesn't have the transformative power. And then when people do it, they look around going, well, we didn't see any difference. Mm. That's because you didn't want to have a difference. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, completely. So Andrew. the thing I was, I, I'm, I'm interested by as well, and I'd be intrigued to get your view on it because I know that, <clears throat> you're both, you know, you're both um, academics and practitioners, and you're kind of in those kind of like um, fields like sociology and anthropology and design and everything else, which is not directly kind of like business, but it's kind of around and it informs a lot of the things. Um, I'd like to hear from you guys because I'm always kind of I'm always fascinated by kind of adjacency and knowledge that kind right. of travels horizontally, right? Because most things, as we know, go like this. Um, because that's just the way that we're organized. But I love trying to apply different things, go, oh, that happened over here. I wonder if they would apply over here, right? Just as a think piece. And so I'd be interested to hear from yourselves about reflections on, you know, the state of service and experience and everything else. And some of the big things that you see from your place of knowledge that some either organizations or the, the discipline are kind of missing, as it were. Do you think, actually, we could learn a lot from this? We could learn, you know, we're missing kind of that. And that would be a really interesting thing to try and apply, if that makes sense. You know, it's funny. One thing that, that jumps out from that is um, there's a design anthropologist named Sarah Pink in Australia. And, and she and a number of colleagues have been doing a ton of different work about how do we sort of both design spaces in hospitals and organizations, uh, as well as how do we think about the role of staff in, in when we're designing spaces themselves. And so in this case, they're, mm -hmm. they're, their goal is to actually help rethink questions of policy, which I, I know it sounds like it's, it's one or two levels removed, but um, contemplating when we're looking at architectural plans or designs for buildings in the first place, that we can't think of uh, in this case, they were studying employee well-being and, and staff well-being and, and how mm -hmm. hospital staff would, you know, sort of create spaces for themselves to be well, whether it's like, you know, in a, in a breakout room or, or just a, a, you know, a quiet space in between working with patients. But how when you actually talk with nurses and doctors and you actually talk with with the staff that are using these spaces, like what would it mean to design intentionally spaces around well-being for them in the first place based on their experiences that they're already having? And it's funny because to us as an anthropologist or sociologist, that sounds like, duh, let's talk to people and get their perspectives right. But recognizing that like the point of this paper is to help influence policy so that when we do architectural planning, we actually think about that in the first place. So it's even, so a lot of it is actually just this broad idea of how do we, to your question, Adrian, how do we cement the, the either customer or employee perspective as part of the actual design of spaces or, or, you know, again, engagement scenarios. And, uh, it is interesting just to, you know, that it's great to see paper like this come out. This paper just came out. And so it's interesting just to realize that right. we're, we're, we're just getting there too at this point. We're just now starting to say, oh yeah, we have to put people 
back into the equation and actually contemplate those that are going to use the services or, you know, buildings or organizations, or whatever, those that are going to use them actually have to be part of the design process. I mean, that, that's what design anthropology is. It's like, we're going to design with and for and alongside those that will use the services, organizations, buildings and such. Um, but it's yeah. like, it's to your point, it's just like, we're just moving up the hill right now, you know, but it's, it's encouraging to see. Yeah. Well, it sort of sounds to me like, you know, if you talk about architecture and stuff and there's, was it the classic balance between form and function? Mm. As it were. Yeah. And it seems to be that that what's happening there is that the idea of um, correct me if I'm wrong that the function idea is just expanding. We're like going, oh, it's not just about that, but that oh, there's this stuff as well that we need to kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's almost becoming kind of more complex, perhaps. Yes. Yeah. Um, but it's being a bit more um, trying to think about things a bit more holistically. Yeah. <clears throat> and I was. As I was reading your book, I wrote actually wrote a note down, um, the Charles Mingus quote, which I think was great. Yeah. Where he said, making the simple complicated is commonplace. Making the complicated simple, awesomely simple, that's creativity. And I think people, number the thing I like to say often is never let a complex failure get in the way of a simple solution. Mm-hmm. And like there is, in that simplicity, right, in, in, in coming up with a complex solution or a simple solution to a complex problem is the distillation of disparate knowledge, right? It's the integration, distillation of disparate knowledge to be able to connect to render this simple solution possible. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, someone walked in a room and said, do that. It was the ability to, as Adam was saying, integrate this variety of things into a, an approach that allows for success to happen without massive disruption necessarily. Not that you don't always want massive disruption, but you don't always need it. Mm-hmm. And innovation doesn't have to be about massive disruption. You can innovate by changing how we look at it, by shifting our approach such that we give up one paradigm to adopt another. But, but you know, people don't get promoted on that necessarily. People don't feel like they've made progress on that. If someone says, well, oh, well, duh, there's a sense that we didn't really do anything. Mm. And so I also wonder, going back to the NBA trap or even the leadership trap, for me to feel like I made a big difference and earned what I'm supposed to be doing, I have to think more large or more you know, larger than this one simple thing. Mm. Yeah. The, um, because it make, so that made you, the, 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 I love the Mingus quote. Um, I wrestled with a bunch of a bunch of different quotes around that sort of um, simplicity idea, and then being a bit of a fan of jazz as well as punk music, which is their kind of uncomfortable bedfellows sometimes. Right. Um, I, I just, I, yeah, I love the kind of the, the 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 Charlie Mingus one. But then it, when you were talking about that, it made me think about um, there's a quote that comes from Einstein, which talks about if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. And I think that also is an interesting sort of reflection and something that we can learn from both sociology and also anthropology in terms of methods of study. Um, and there's also the discipline 
which is related to, to, to sociology and anthropology in many ways. It's like the discipline of sort of systems thinking. Right. One of the first things that you have to do is you have to go and study, just to go and observe and just to see what is going on, not to fix, but just to see. And um, that, I think, it's almost that, that that's going to balance around, um, you know, some people get really impatient that actually if they're just observing and trying to understand, they're not doing something. And, you know, and it makes me kind of also think about this oh, kind of, kind of esoteric sort of references. I remember the, um, I think it's Ken Blanchard that wrote the One Minute Manager books. Is that right? No, I think so. Anyway, the um, I think it's the, the right reference. Anyway, the, the book is called The One Minute Manager, and there's it's this kind of story about this guy and how he kind of runs things and how he's grown to do that. But it gets to the point where in the afternoon he's kind of like sitting in his office with his feet up on the desk and stuff and his boss comes in and goes like what are you doing he's like going i'm thinking <laughs> and he's like going can he just not look busy right and i think that's the kind of the point because he basically enabled everybody to be to make their own decisions and kind of like to you know to equip with the right sort of tools and skills and knowledge and everything to do this sort of thing and he was there to help when needed, but he was also thinking and reflecting on other sort of like stuff. So the idea that you're just sat there thinking that isn't doesn't naturally equate in the modern kind of organizational context with proper work. Mm. It's like knowledge work, but that's the wrong kind of knowledge work, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just think I just I just think that's fascinating. Maybe that's why we have we end up with these kind of like um Oh, I don't know. Maybe people are just sat there going, and they just sort of almost like hypnotically tapping away on their keyboards, but they're actually just kind of zoned out. I mean, the one good thing about just sitting there is that you could always say, "At least I'm not doing anything wrong right now." Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so I'm doing no harm by not doing nothing by do, by doing nothing and not doing anything. So mm -hmm. that's a win. But, but I, I do think, but I do think that there is that sort of thing around. Um, I think in many cases that it's, I, I also, I think, and I have been thinking about for a while is that a lot of all this stuff, you talk about sort of unlearning things or relearning things or learning new things. And it's about space, creating the space to do that. And I think that's a function of time and how we manage our time and our attention. And it's fascinating. I speak to lots of people. And I'm always struck with horror. The idea when somebody goes back to back meetings all day. And I'm like, so when did you do some proper work? Right. Right. You know, and even in how Zoom has changed that too, where we rather than when I used to have a 10 minute break between or 20 minutes because you have to go walk, actually walk somewhere right now. They just will just people, it took, I think it took the world six months to realize we shouldn't just schedule meetings literally back to back to back to back. Cause we're, we're on zoom mm -hmm. all day. Right. Like, Oh wait, I actually have to, I have to go to the bathroom. I forgot about that. Right. So it's even, even as, as simple as that too, where we don't even contemplate um, the tools that, that make things possible or, or like, you know, that may ease the fact that we can meet, you know, across the globe uh, in different areas. But then, we forget I have to take a bio break, right? Or that I need to like, I need a moment to eat lunch or I need a moment actually to your point, just to decompress, right? Even because mm. it makes you more effective of, 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 or productive as a worker. So it is, it is interesting to think about that too. And just, um, 
you know, to your earlier point about, you know, when we get obsessed with AI and ML and all these other pieces and thinking about how awesome our horsepower is, but then forgetting that we actually have the, the superpowers right with us anyway, right? Um, I don't know, yeah, so I mean, I, I, I am really struck by this idea of how do we kind of unlearn these things and, and um, you know, maybe jazz, the most, to me, one of the more complex frames of music, uh, you know, has a lot to teach us in that space in terms of that, you know, to learn to improvise, you have to be somewhat of an expert, right, in order then to make it sound simple. But then it's funny because our humanity is what we're actually the most expert thing at, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I love that. You know, it's like I love bring that. that. We have to bring that back into play, I think, and especially when it comes to things like, I mean, the customers. If you, it's like the idea of the customer is the expert, right, in being a customer, as, as weird as that sounds, right? or the employee is the expert at being the employee. Um, and, and yet we treat it like we have to, we have to coddle them or guide them or make them like do what we want them to do. If we're leadership, for yeah. example, um, I don't know. It's it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, no, because that makes me think about the. Um, there's this idea that um, I call it the Jekyll and Hyde syndrome, where we're like all people. We're all kind of human beings. We get up in the morning and we're just like this human being. We're the combination of being, you know, a parent or a son or a daughter, or an employee and a customer and a citizen and a neighbor and all these different things. And we go about our business and then we seem to, many of us can like seem to go to work and then cross over the threshold and they become this kind of like person that forgets about everything else. Mm-hmm. And I sort of understand, I sort of want, I worry about kind of how and why that kind of happens. It's not that people are monsters generally. Mm-hmm. It just, it seems to be a thing. And is that basically because they, they enter into a different almost cultural construct mm-hmm. and it's all about expectations? Yeah. I think that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's all kinds of theories of the self, right? And so even to the point where <clears throat> if I put on different clothing, right, as a, you know, as a artifact of self and how I do like as Irving Goffman's book, Presentation of Self, right? This dramaturgical self where I'm acting a role. It's not just a role I construct for myself, but it's a role that I am trying to adhere to based on the expectations created for me by others and society. Mm. And this even goes not to get too weirdly sociological, but George Herbert Mead and the play stage and the generalized other in our development as not just human beings, but social beings. And then we get programmed into these things and which then become constraining. And the trick is we are programmed into this constrained system that we ourselves are creating. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, but the so thing we, is like those constraints are what let, allow us to communicate with each other though. So it's like, it's interesting that like the constraints themselves aren't bad, right? We need them. But yes, it's, it's, it's important for us to be like, but we actually did socially create these, right? And so when they don't work for us, it's, that's our responsibility to then say, hold on, let's pause and reflect. Sorry, I didn't mean to jump in there. But like that's, okay. it, it t- I think it tells us something important there where it's like, the point is not to be, I mean, maybe punk, to not be pure anarchy, but it is to like kick it, stick it to the man a little bit in terms of the man being culture and that like, it's okay to like talk back to it and say, we actually can set the rules a bit differently because they are, we created these rules in the first place, right? They're not just there to be there. Um, oh yeah. So there's something really interesting about that too. So um, anyway, back to you, Gary, sorry. No, no, I think that's, I think that's spot on because <clears throat> the question then becomes, you know, to what extent are these things valuable and important, right? What, what are they serving? I was talking to a friend of mine and, you know, one of the things that he often asks himself around a bad behavior is well, what's that doing for you? I mean, what's that behavior doing for? What are you getting out of that? Are you getting anything out of that? 
So as long as those constraints are productive and we're getting things out of that and they're useful, that makes sense, right? It's easy to find a doctor in a hospital because you look for the stethoscope and the coat, right? I mean, it has a function, but mm -hmm. at the same time, it also creates role expectations and performative elements, which can impede in delivering patient experience, not just from the doctor's point of view, but also the patient's point of view, because they're co-creating it together. And if all we're focused on, a, going back to your systems point, Adrian, which I think is so important, if all you're doing is focused on patient experience, it's like going out to eat and only focusing on one part of the meal. Mm -hmm. Well, what about the other parts of the meal? Because together it creates the meal. If all you're doing is worrying about the patient and you're not working about the doctor, the nurse, the receptionist, the parking attendant, the custodial staff, whatever, you know, whatever your, wherever your list ends, then you're not really worrying about the total experience. You're just worrying on this, about this one thing, probably just for at least in the United States, billing and reimbursement purposes or right. because you have to, right? And if you really want to improve that thing, it takes more than just, you know, your, your um, electronic health record portal, but it goes into what are the experiences of those people, frontline staff who are working in that, that facility? Mm. That becomes the, the, that becomes the meal as a system. And, you know, going beyond those constraints to think more globally becomes the goal, I think, at least laid out in your book and well, how we, Adam and I talk about it as systems related professions to look at it all and then yeah, to integrate yeah. it together. Oh, Hallelujah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I can, I can kind of agree more. I mean, that makes the, that makes the problem kind of harder to sort of, to understand. And we know how people respond to difficulty, you know, generally run away from it. Um, but therein lies the challenge, right? Um, and, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a bit about seeing the whole. I mean, it struck me actually, Adam, when you talked about anarchy, because I'm quite a fan of anarchy. Um, but anarchy is, a, is a, in a true philosophical sense, not in the popular sort of understanding of it or the propaganda-driven understanding of it. Um, it, it's more of a, you know, the system of a, of natural law and voluntary hierarchy. Um, and it made me think about this idea of, and go back to the sort of the, the Charlie Mingus kind of quote, is that do we default to do, putting too much in place then because, and we keep adding and adding and adding like controls and policies and rules and, and all these different things. And actually, maybe we should work harder to kind of like slim them down. And would that give us more freedom? I mean, one, just one, I mean, just to add to the, the confusion pile, it's like the, the, the thing that like <laughs> I struggle with here is, cause I, I think, I think you're right. Like, I think I believe the, like one solution is to help simplify, but like while we're, while we grapple with time and space, the other thing that like, I think anthropology and sociology help us realize around these problems is that we also deal with the issue of scale. Right. And then mm -hmm. bureaucracy and complexity are, are directly related to scale on some level too. Right. You don't see it. I mean, this is not a great example, but you don't think of any, 
um, like small tribal group or small scale society as having massively complex bureaucracy. They may have like incredibly complex rituals and, and belief systems. And, and, you know, they may be just as complex as some, you know, idea we have about freedom and the Declaration of Independence in the United States. But um, the scale at which implementation has to take place is, is entirely different, right? And so mm. I, th- that's, I know, that's just a point where I struggle too, where it's like time, space plus scale. Um, and, but the thing is, that's why we need systems thinking because we are dealing with, with, with such massive scales, even in an organization, right? And even just again, pick a hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Just, we have doctors and patients and nurses and, and billing and insurance and blah, 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 you know, and, and, and everything. So, um, I don't know. So I'm just going to throw a scale in the pile and, and light it on fire too. Well, no, that's a fair point because that's always the thing that, um, that's always the spanner that gets thrown at some of these kind of challenges, mm-hmm. but I don't think it's enough to dismiss the idea. Um, scale is a challenge, but it shouldn't be used as a rebuff to say that we should just keep doing things the way that yeah, we've agreed, done. Agreed. You know, it's yeah, definitely. It's 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 there's like time, <laughs> there's like space, and then there's kind of like scale, and it scales just like another vector that we need to kind of like factor into uh, into it. But it doesn't mean to say that we go, I oh, know we're not going to do anything different because. That doesn't, this has proven that, you know, we can do things at scale, but that doesn't necessarily make it right Right. forever. Yeah, pulling it back, you know, in terms of the language part, I was just writing this down, it made me think about this. You know, we use the word systems thinking, we don't say systems theory. I mean, if I think about like a theory, like a sociological theory, a theory Mm -hmm. is there to explain the existence of you know, a, a set of interrelated propositions, right? So like how things work together. It helps to explain why society works the way it is. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, from what I've read around complex systems or systems thinking, it's not doing that. Rather, it's giving a approach to trying to understand, mm-hmm. right? How we should approach a thing. And so one of the things about systems thinking or complex systems is this element of you can't derive the solution from one academic perspective. You have to come at it from across different areas. Mm-hmm. And so going back to the hospital example, um, and this was an actual real case that I was working on um, with a client. They wanted to work with, with uh, healthcare providers around identifying sex trafficking, okay? okay, and especially among children. And so they were talking to the nurses. They were talking to the social workers. They were talking to the doctors, giving them training on what to do and what to ask. When I was doing an observation of an emergency room, I said, well, who are those people over there? Well, those are the security guards. What do they do? Well, they, just, they, they sit there and they make sure that people don't do anything in, in the waiting room. Like they're not acting weird or funny. I'm like, well, what does weird or funny mean? Well, I don't know, just if they're being disruptive. So you're telling me you have people whose job it is to observe for suspicious behavior while people are waiting, which is probably the bulk of the time they're at the hospital and they're not part of this conversation. Well, yeah, why would we include them? And you just kind of go, hmm, (laughs) Hmm. maybe because they're doing the thing that you're trying to get these other people to do who are way more busy than the security people are. (laughs) And so it goes to this, like a systems approach would be to, okay, who are all the operators in the space? Who are all the people engaged? They all have knowledge. They all have expertise. Maybe, I don't know, maybe we should all bring them together and see what we can learn from them. So what do you think actually stops people kind of joining those dots? Yeah, I, I, my honest opinion is I think a lot of it has to do with um, professional bias. I think it has to do with an idea of knowledge work and manual labor. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I think it has to do with not be, you know, having being myopic, not being able to see the field. So I'm thinking about patients. If I think about patients, I'm thinking about doctors and nurses. If I think about the healthcare journey, like a journey map, I'm then thinking about all the touch points along the way or all the spaces along the way where this person's coming into contact with some somebody or something that creates an opportunity for exploration. Mm. So that, that, that's a quick explanation. I'd be curious what, what you all think, but that's, that's two of the things I think blind people to seeing those, those individuals or those, um, those jobs as being essential to delivering answers. What oh, do you by think, the way, Adam? Some, some of it, by the way, might be race as well, because yeah. if you have certain racial categories who are working in certain kinds of jobs, they might not even know it's race. Are they less likely to see them as having knowledge related to whatever it is we're considering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't want to, I don't want to avoid that part of it too, as well as gender. Yeah. And no, I think, I think that's important. And I, I would, I would echo the idea. It's, it's interesting. I'm trying to think about this now outside of the, of, of, of Gary's case study, because that like that very much actually is, is framing how I'm thinking about this just to, to, because it's like, if we're, if we're thinking about security guards in a hospital as, um, it's funny because we, we say, okay, what, what does security guard do? And it's like they're, you know, both making sure that law and order, quote unquote, are in place and that that things are happening as they should be and that no one is under duress or threat. But then it's like when you say that extrapolated, when we're saying we're trying to understand um, and make sure that we can cut down on sex trafficking, then it's like, why would you not talk? Like if you're thinking about any law and order TV show or CSI, you're going to jump immediately to the investigative folks, right? Which are those which are, you know, would translate to security guards in this case. And so it's, it is curious too that that I think when context shifts, we're not really great at then recognizing the same kind of work. In the case, like again, we might think law and order, we would immediately go to our you know our our police and maybe our our attorneys, right, to have them help us solve the case. But then when we change that context to a hospital, we immediately think hospital. Oh, doctors and nurses. Like who are the quote? I guess essential staff is an interesting way to, to phrase that. And I, I don't. And it's like that's getting mixed up now in COVID thinking too of who's an essential worker, but. Um, but when we say who's the essential staff of any kind of institution, right, in a context, we then think of that. So it's like, if I want to go into an organization and understand, like, why are things not working? Who am I going to talk to? You know, if I'm if I'm a McKinsey consultant, I'm going to say leadership, right? I'm going to say who's like guiding the boat. But then if I ask an anthropologist that, they're going to say we need to talk to the, the actual, the, you know, the employees and leadership too, right? Uh, sure. So I think that, that I think, I think too, I guess we just have trouble shifting our context and maybe that is just a lack of systems perspective on one level of just realizing if you if you like if we're able to create a value neutral like stakeholder map every time we would go into a a, a situation to try to see what a what the problem is and then b how we might solve it then that might help us overcome that bias but i think too like it's yeah that's why i would just add context shifting is really tricky uh for us to do yeah i mean i think the um I think Gary's point about professional bias and worth and value and stuff is, and respect is definitely, mm-hmm. you know, particularly if you, and I, I guess it comes from what you store up in kind of like the, what you've accrued in your career and your position and stuff. And, and, um, and, and all that, I go back to that kind of belief structure is like, and then how you think about other people and other kind of like roles or what would they know about that mm-hmm. sort of thing? Because they haven't right. done seven years worth of this and that and right. blah, blah, blah. Oh, they're, they're only a security guard. Right. You're like, going, yeah, but they're a security guard when somebody busts in and creates havoc and then they kind of like, and they subdue them. 
then they're like a hero, which is sort of relative, actually quite reflective of where we're currently at and this in the situation where everybody's like going, yay, for kind of frontline workers. Right. Right. Because we're in a crisis. But how much is going to change? Kind of when the effects of the crisis kind of recede. Um, and, and, and I think that for me, I, I think that's fundamentally, it, it, it's a, it's a flawed value proposition of kind of where, you know, kind of where we're, where we're at. You end up with this, sometimes the most important people in an organization, either the ones that have one of the most contact with either a patient or a citizen or a customer or kind of whoever it might be can, t- can often be some of the most badly paid and worst treated kind of members of staff in your organization. And, and, and I struggle with, I struggle with that. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's, that's spot on too. In some, so often those roles are designed, these front frontline workers and or call center employees or, or folks working at the front desk, right. Of, of, who are greeting, uh, you know, customers when they come in, they the roles are designed also to not be really good for them, and, and like they always, they often have some of the highest turnover insurance, right? Um, and they and they were also the organization tends to see them as as requiring the least skill or training too, which is quite interesting. To back to our MBA point, right? Of what is not taught for mm-hmm. what what is most valuable for business, and because um, I recently did a project with with a with a client around that we're interviewing CEOs of organizations about how they look at workplace relationships. And that was, was one of the pieces that, that stuck with me too, is that they, they're, you know, they recognize that like they have the highest churn in these, in essentially these customer facing roles, but don't have any set ideas of what it would mean to make those better beside the fact that we should. Um, and they would say in the same sentence that without having customers, there's no business, but then it's like, well, without having employees that work with customers, <laughs> <laughs> right. You know? Yeah, map map it out for them. It's like so you, you do know that without employees you couldn't do this. And even if you know, going back to well, yeah, there's been a, an argument around the fifteen dollar minimum wage. Right? Mm-hmm. So that if you know, if McDonald's is forced to pay people, I'm just saying McDonald's just as an example. If they're forced to pay fifteen dollars for minimum wage, it's going to replace the people with uh, these touch screens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the same time as you know, your Adrian, your book was laying out, and as others have showed, most people want to have, um, you know, that that personal touch point experience, especially for repeat customers. Mm-hmm. It's hard to be, you know, one of, one of the things I ask my students is what, what's the difference between a customer and a regular? It's hard to become a regular with a machine. Yeah. You know, and it's yeah, that, yeah. it's that feeling of like, I belong that I'm recognized that, you know, that I matter here that sure you can, you can service. If all you want to do is have transactional moments where you try to get customers in and customers out, you, you can absolutely go with a machine if that's what you want to do. If you want to create a customer experience built on relationships and authenticity, you're going to need but it's people. Also, it, it's also one of the fascinating things about it, and it you know, relates to you know, a social and anthropological sort of perspective. We, you know, we are social kind of beings, right? And yet the advent of technology it's supposed to make things kind of faster, quicker, easier, all that sort of stuff. But actually you take away that kind of social kind of human kind of element. And to your point, kind of Gary, you take away that the potential to belong, you know, um, and it just reminds me of the, 
the theme tune to Cheers, um, which I, uh, which I'm not which I'm not going to kind of like break into kind of like a rendition of. But um, for anybody listening, then do look it up. Um, and but that's the real kind of value, right? Why would you want to expend your your time and effort always chasing kind of new if you can't build some loyalty or retention, some belonging, as it were? Um, and because that's what people want, but if you're not working hard to kind of give them that, then it's like you're you're going to fast track to commoditizing your own business. Yeah, exactly right, and. I think this is where like with your book and this is like the question, you know, that needs to be asked is, you know, how can, you know, how can we help you CEO? You know, this is, we, we know this stuff, right. But yet the, the, the paradigm, the culture of the organization, the, the imagined role of the, of the place in the org chart is that, you know, I'm not going to listen. And that's where, you know, the disruption is, Rather than just incrementally saying, "Well, maybe we can do this, maybe we can do that," you know, maybe it's like, no, you need to really accept that if you want to be different, you have to be deviant in some way. You have to change. You have to go against that which you've always you were taught in your program. You thought was, you know, the rule, and think differently. And when companies have, we have examples, and in your book at the end, you have like you know the list of companies that you talk about, yeah. like Patagonia, right? Um, or I forgot the name of the company where that gentleman was paying his workers seventy thousand dollars while reducing his pay. Uh, Dan Price at Gravity Payments. There you go. We, you know, who kind of Josh Limbaugh kind of like uh, um, called him a communist because he was going to break all the rules. You're like, how dare you pay kind of like people uh, the, uh, a minimum salary of seventy thousand dollars? It's like going, it'll be the the destruction of the United States of America. Well, keep, keeping with the punk theme here, if I was, I'm just going to write this down because I think it's pretty good. It is the deviance that makes the difference, right? I mean, whether it is Yvonne Chouinard, uh, you know, let my people go surfing, or yeah. the example you just mentioned. These are the people who were, you know, are seen as deviant, but yet they're making the difference in terms of showing how to live the rhetoric that is so easily espoused but so hard to live up to. Mm-hmm. And I think that the interesting kind of thing about all of this is look, I kind of like the idea of deviant in a positive, in a positive way because right. it just, you know, it, it implies you're just taking a very different direction. You're, de- you're, you're, you're deviating from the path, as it were. And, you know, in the words of kind of the... the was it the Robert Frost poem, kind of the, the road less traveled? Right. Um, but that requires you to, I guess, be brave and take a, a degree of personal kind of risk. Um, but it also, I think it requires the idea that if you're not willing to do that, then get out of the way mm. and fire yourself or step down or step aside or whatever. Because if you can be honest with yourself, honest enough with yourself, you say, I'm just not going to be able to do that. Then go find a place that is a bit safer for you and get out of the way of, of somewhere that's a bit more um, ambitious. 
because I think there's so much potential, but it's just being held back by many people that are not willing to take a risk or give up some stuff or to look foolish or to be wrong or, or, or whatever. Yes, I know sort of psychologically we're, we fear being wrong because it strikes at the very heart of our survival kind of nature. So we see being wrong as being a threat and it's a real sort of fight or flight sort of thing. Um, but I think the idea of like anything, like if you're an athlete, um, when you're training, you get used to pain when you train, right? Right, right. Um, and so maybe the thing to do is to try and pick one thing which might feel like a huge thing that you're going to do differently. And then just try that. And then see what happens. Don't tell anybody. Just do it yourself. You know, the world is not watching. But, um, and not waiting for you to do, you know, things. Um, but it's almost a bit like build up your like uh what's the word like condition yourself to do that sort of stuff and i think that's where you probably get ready but that requires again the space and the time and the the inclination to do it i think i, I like the idea um, too of oh, sorry go ahead you know go ahead go ahead um I, I just I, I like like actually what i hear you describing too is is both like the as if as if positive deviance was a coin right and one side of it is those that are willing to then you know pay themselves seventy thousand or pay, pay everyone $70,000 minimum. And then the flip side is like, if you won't do that, then get out of the way. Um, and so it's, it's interesting too, because I, I, you know, to your point too, about conditioning oneself to do good or to, to do these kinds of things, I think there is definitely something that resonates here with me. And I mean, thinking about mindfulness practice too, in terms of like, you have to take the small steps to make a change, right? You can't just say, I'm now going to you know flip the entire company. But if you do do certain small things that, you know, at moments, if that makes it easier than like, it, it makes us, more willing to be wrong because it lowers the stakes of being wrong, right? It's not my company will create her and everyone ever will never invest in me or whatever it is, you know, but, but mm -hmm. um, by making these changes, and then also the, the other side of it too, I think is just, you know, like the idea of being wrong, of course, the, the, the hidden word in there is that we don't want to be socially wrong, right? We don't want our peers to be like you, you're out, get out, exile. Right. Yeah. And so, but the good thing is like, also like with your, with, with punk CX too, is that it, part of it is, I think about making people aware of the bigger community of those that are willing to be positive deviants. Right. In that, um, yeah. that's one of the key things because then it's like the social cost of it goes down. It, it's like, I actually don't remember. Maybe you remember this, Gary. I don't remember the name of the phenomenon, but it's like the the bravest person is actually the second one to do something. Mm -hmm. The first one's just crazy. The, the second one that follows <laughs> them is the one that then okay, now it begins to make a movement, right? Um, and there's something about that I think too of just of making that visible. Yeah. Uh, I like it. I mean, I think there's um, what you were when you were talking there. It reminds me of the idea that yeah, you can build up to this. It's a bit like what um, Philip Seligman mm. was talking about when he in his book Positive Psychology. This is not about kind of like you know, it's not happy clappy kind of like you're great kind of in the mirror sort of like right. stuff. And if, you know, it's not that indoctrination. It's about how you frame things, mm. how you kind of like teach yourself to see the world and to do certain things. And I think. That I find fascinating. And I just encourage, you know, not just leaders, because it's not the, just the premise of, of, of leaders. It's, it's, it's just the premise of, it's, it's almost like the, um, I would say it's a responsibility and the obligation of pretty much everybody 
is to try and just do more and be more, you know, do, you know, um, I like to see people, I don't know, more people walk down the street and make eye contact with each other and then nod, smile. Yeah. Crumbs. You know, I've got, um, I've got a rather tongue in cheek passage at the end of the, not Punk CX, but the, the last book I wrote before that, it's called How to Wow. Um, and the, in the, the last passage, it was like, someone's a bit like, I have a dream, dot, dot, dot. Completely tongue in cheek. And it was like the idea if we could just make service a little bit better for everybody, kind of everywhere and every every day, then people would have better days. We'd get into less arguments. There'd be less fights, less war, kind of like conflict, world peace, hallelujah. Thanks very much. Right. You know, because it's that sort of ripple effect type of sort of thing. Because it all starts with like small sort of like steps. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, I'm... I'm insanely optimistic about that sort of stuff and probably completely idealistic, but if I keep banging the drum, then maybe somebody's going to hear, you know. But I'm going to stop kind of rattling on. I want to ask you, because this is one thing I'm, like I told, I told um, earlier about, it was the idea, I love learning new things from adjacent spaces. And I know you guys are deep in, you know, the interface between sociology and anthropology and business and, and all of that sort of stuff. I mean, what are you guys looking at, researching, thinking about right now that's kind of like emerging that go, oh, that's interesting. There could be something in that. What's your veins of research or something that you're or big big research questions that you're that you're you're pondering kind of right now? Because I think I always think kind of like some of the stuff that comes out of academia is 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 fascinating, incredibly useful, and and there's not enough of an interface between the business and practical kind of like worlds and and and, and a lot of the, the the research that goes on in, in academia. You want to go first, Ed? Um, you're more in the academic space than I am, so you you can go first. I am. Well, there's there's two there's two things that come to mind for me like right now. Uh, one would be what I call diversity and data. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of work being done. And I'm lucky enough to be working with a great, with a PhD student this semester on the sociology of finance because of the work that's happening around how algorithms, how machine learning can, can perpetuate and generate an inequality. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that it, in many ways it dispels the notion that, these, you know, it's just the data, right? The data is neutral. The data is objective. Well, it's it's absolutely not. There's a really wonderful book called Data Feminism I used last semester. Um, there's a really great book called Invisible Women about how women aren't even present in data. They're not even counted. So then when the algorithms are built off of that data, they're not present in those algorithms and those um, analyses that happen. So whether it's a um, an activist or a feminist orientation to even the spaces of data, and the need, you know, that really does underline the need for diversity because the data, if the data isn't diverse and doesn't capture the multiple voices that exist, mm -hmm. then the analysis is going to perpetuate that inequality and that power differential mm -hmm. that, it, that it captured originally, right? So I think that's, mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of really strong stuff that I'm hoping to do more of. And GameStop, by the way, 
kind of underlines the sociology of the markets, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's it's you know people are like, oh, you mean what people think and do matters? Like, I don't know, maybe we might want to take a look at that. People often would ask me, Adam probably gets the same thing. Well, what can you do with a sociology degree? Like, well, I sure as hell can analyze GameStop and tell you why that happened. Mm -hmm. Right? So that's the first thing. The second thing related to that is around complex systems. And I think that, you know, getting into those areas of dancing landscapes, of emergence, of integration, right? Of even simulation. Mm. You know, combining those elements from computer science, from biology, from chemistry, from physics, from, eco- from ecology, with economics and sociology and psychology, and that scenario, element and scenario planning in and there scenario, as well. Exactly right. You know, going in there, working in those um, hybrid teams, creates real opportunity to share, learn, and and try to um, understand. Mm. So, you know, whether it's like stuff from the Santa Fe Institute or other areas where people are actively engaged in this, and it's also that translation, right? Because it's not just furthering our academic understanding, it's towards some kind of end and also understanding the limits of our understanding mm-hmm. that we, you know, we are not masters over our analytic domain, mm-hmm. that some things are impossible to predict like black swan events. And we just have to be okay with that. Um, even though we doesn't mean we shouldn't try to understand, it doesn't mean we can't control everything through um, our wit, guile, and technology. Yeah, wit, guile, and technology. Yeah, cool. Let's made that up. I'm typing it down. I'm typing it. <laughs> Write that down. That's a keeper. Yeah. <laughs> Write it down. Um, I was just to add a bit on that, but also just some some things that I'm seeing. I. Um, I think something that that's really struck me that that's been been on my radar also because it's just it's where I'm doing more work now is is around what does it look like to empower social scientists to be data analysts and so because agreed to the point that data isn't neutral itself mm-hmm. but um, and we need a social science lens in order to you know take a more systems perspective I think um, you know a more human systems perspective but then at the other side too it's, it's what does it look like when when social scientists are the data analysts um, and we don't see that. A super often time, and, wow. and this is just an example in terms of a, a company I, I work with now called MotiveBase that we we do re- technology enabled research. Um, you know, for for you know consumer packaged goods for for restaurant companies for for all sorts of things. Um, you know, but the work our, our work is to interpret uh, the data that we get like for clients and. Mm-hmm. There's something really interesting about that idea. I mean, Grant, I mean, you're always, I mean, any analyst is interpreting data, but like there's something that when, when anthropologists and political scientists and sociologists are the ones intentionally doing that, and that's that's called out as who are the data analysts for this kind of work. Um, it changes the question, it, it changes the equation, it changes what the clients think they're getting. Um, and that's been really interesting to see so far. And so um, I'm excited to see kind of how this 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 develops further too. Um, and, and as we put social scientists in these positions of, of being analysts themselves mm. for businesses. Yeah. Ooh, that's interesting. Yeah, fascinating. Hmm. 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 Indeed. Mm, indeed. <laughs> so that's what we do here. We go, we go hmm. Yes. Then we stroke our chins. We look good, like, look, gaze off into the distance. Yes. We put our feet up on the desk. We say, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm, I'm working. I'm working. By working. This is what work looks like. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, think, go ahead, Gary. I'll say, I th- I th- you know, uh, wrapped up in all of this is really this, this need for public scholarship, right? I mean, yeah. it's this, this integration 
of perspectives that can only be accomplished when people get out from behind the walls of the academy and into the world to not just study, but to engage Mm -hmm. and to collaborate. And that's where, whether it's the podcast or whether it's live streaming or whether it's, you know, social media, there's so much anti-information out there, not fake news, because that would mean it's news. It's anti, right? Mm -hmm. It's anti-material, it's anti-matter, right? Uh, there's so much of that out there that there needs to be a, an increasing earnestness around engaging more broadly with people in terms that they can understand, appreciate, and act upon. Mm-hmm. And whether it's, you know, that's what I liked about your book too, is like it, it translates. Well, thank you. You could have wrote that same book with a lot fewer pictures mm-hmm. and a lot more words and a lot of references. Mm-hmm. It would have not necessarily been better. Oh no! I mean, that book could have been, um, that could have book could have been three, four times longer, with lots of black ink on white paper and lots of kind of like detailed kind of case studies and two by two matrices and and all that sort of stuff. And it would have been probably it may have been quite useful, but it would have been dull. And I think that I was lucky enough to come up with an idea born out of frustration that I was able to carve into a piece of art, my own art, as it were, that basically says, you know what? If you don't like it, then fuck you. In true punk fashion. Yeah, he's <laughs> dropped the mic and then yeah. just leave. It's like going, but if you want to sit, if you want to sit and you want to have a conversation and you want to chew around and you have, you know, and, and have a rummage around some of these ideas, then let's have at it. Because what's going on right now, I don't think is good enough, particularly in that whole service and experience sphere. And I think we can do better. And it was just a, a an incitement to do better work. That's it. And yeah. So I called my, my personal kind of like art project because I did it because I, and I had no expectations out of it. I thought I'll do it and see what happens. And wonderfully it's landed with a whole bunch of people. Somebody even called it a cult classic the other day. I'm like, how did that, how, how the hell did that happen? <laughs> I'm like, okay. <laughs> That's a cult. I wouldn't mind joining. Well, there you go. <laughs> as, a, as opposed to the ones running around right now, which seem a little bit, uh, oh, dear. a little bit suspect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the other CX cult uh, experience. Yes, right. exactly. I mean, I think there's, yeah, I mean, and it was just a, you know, a call against productivism, you know, God, like open your eyes, look around. Um, and, and and that in that was that was it. And so, and I wrestled with the idea of like, can I put more into it? Should I do volume two? Am I going to fall into kind of second album, sort of like kind of folly? Blah 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 blah. And and then and then I go, oh no, I've got a rod from my own back. What am I going to do to beat this? Should I just write something boring next? <laughs> like who knows? A pop up book. 
Oh, I, I, yeah. I don't know. I was thinking about a graphic novel, but then I have to find somebody to do that with. Oh, there you go. That's a cool idea. Or just like a, I don't know, a novel. I tell you, one of the best novels, best business novels I ever, I ever read, was uh, "The Goal" by Eli Goldratt. <laughs> don't know it. And if you've um, never thought, uh, never heard of that, you should check it out because yeah, I think you'll love it because it's about uh, it's got it's very it takes very much a systems approach to things, but it's also about this idea about the theory of constraints. I think you guys will like it because, like, it's it's like somebody's personal kind of journey. And then he's being mentored by somebody in this kind of like, uh, I he's taking on this kind of manufacturing kind of plan, and it's like, it's sometimes you have to read it and you're like going, what? Go back and then read it again because it's like it's 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 a really engaging, very well written, really engaging piece. But sometimes it gets quite complex, and some of it is a, a really kind of counterintuitive. But it's brilliant, really, really good. <laughs> Well, I was just thinking about um, as you were describing that. I was also thinking about what a pop-up book would look like if the if the if the owner of the company was screwing over his workers. How that might manifest itself as a pop-up book. I don't know. I'm not sure that I would like that image. Yeah, I think that uh, the thing that springs to my mind is Chevy Chase kind of trying to whack the kind of the the gopher on the golf course. Right. (laughs) (laughs) I think it makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> um yeah and no, gentlemen you know what i want to say thank you for you know making me think about some of this sort of stuff and uh and i know for my own podcast can like sake that just the very fact that i'm speaking to two fine gentlemen that are majorly in the sort of sociological and anthropological kind of fields that'll just add a piquant of interest if you like and diversity into some of the the, you know the channel that we've got i like to put that sort of stuff in because you know um i benefit hopefully people that we, we um um that listen in kind of benefit and i'm trying to mix things up and and play around with the formula a little bit, do multiple kind of like different sort of people, kind of randoms kind of chats, a rummage arounds. I might call them a rummages, a series of rummages. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it's helpful to, to me because I think, Gary, like you said, rightly so, is that actually having a conversation about stuff that's in the public domain that has no real... Uh, purpose rather than just to explore and to understand i think that's useful um because i think it furthers understanding i think um a lot of the time a a bit back to that idea around einstein's quote about how do you spend your time how do you spend an hour when confronted with a problem um i think the more time we spend trying to understand a problem the better equipped we are going to be able to think about solving it. All right. And we want to thank Adrian Swinsko for stopping by the EXD studio and sharing his take on how to bring customer experience back down to earth. If you want to find more about how to be a punk CX yourself, an adherent and an advocate, please check out our show notes for more details as well as you can follow Adrian. Also, you can check out his awesome new organization, the European Customer Experience Organization or ECXO linked in the show notes. 
You can also communicate with us directly through our feedback, which is feedback at experiencexdesign.com. That is experiencexdesign.com. We always love hearing from you. Thanks to all of you who have emailed us already. Enjoy having your feedback and your ideas. So make sure you keep them coming. Also, as always, if you want to subscribe and join the EXT community, you can head over to our website at experiencexdesign.com where you can subscribe for free to stay on top of all the EXT news. And you can also join our discussions over at our LinkedIn page. So with that, stay punk, stay true, and we will see you next week, everybody.